so let's start this one. Um, first of all, thank you very much for coming back. It's a ninth week together. Uh, I know sometimes we have more people, sometimes we have less people, but one of the things that I want to thank you is uh, we have almost 6,000 downloads of the talks online, and that's awesome. You know, that means that people, are, if they cannot attend the meeting, they're coming back and listening to all of us just share our thoughts and and I think during these times, now that things are going to open up, probably we're going to see less and less of these talks that I hope, I hope not. I, I think instead of being so long, they could be shorter. But I think, I hope that there's still collaboration between all of us, you know, in the future, uh, whatever level we can be. Um, I, today, you know, as I sent you in the email, the, the, the topics that we still have left, and since nobody has, I don't remember if anybody said, yeah, yeah, uh, John, John Sakovich sent me something that he would like to talk. Uh, but first, we can start with how did you approach taking over a program? Have you kept things the same? Changed everything? How did athletes handle that change? Um, and, you know, I think that whoever sent me that topic was because maybe they thought that I could share my experiences and my thoughts. And I don't know if any one of you wants to start with the conversation or you want me to start. So, uh, I don't know. Has anybody anything to say about this topic? How, how do you approach taking over a program? Uh, I'll start. I think um, a lot depends on, sorry, I'm trying to find a quiet place. Um, a lot depends on um, what the program is like um, before you get there. So when I took over for Sergio, it was just kind of a transition. Um, you know, the kids knew me, the parents knew me, so it wasn't that big of a change. And, um, you know, there were things that I changed myself, which, you know, I made some changes right away. But I think one of the things I learned when Sergio came to Bulls was don't change everything at once, you know, change the things that need to be changed. And, um, you know, things that are going well, let those go for a little bit and then make changes over time. And eventually in a couple of years, you can make so many changes and kids and parents don't even realize it. Uh, are you there? Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you know, again, I didn't make very many changes, but I'd already been there with the program, so I wasn't brand new coming in. Um, I think you kind of have to look at it, you know, if you're brand new coming into a program, you know, my philosophy thought process would be to kind of, you know, look at it from a 30,000-foot view and then just see what needs to immediately be changed and, you know, what can wait a little bit. Um, but I don't think you want to change too many things right away. Confuse people. That's my th Awesome. Uh, any, any, anybody wants to piggyback on whatever John said? Uh, I'll give you my five cents. You know, I've done... Uh, I think one of the things that I don't know if I'm a good coach and I don't need anybody to pat me in the back. I, I have, I, I want to believe that I've done a good job, but I, I, I think that one of the things that I really believe is that I have been able to build cultures or to change things, you know? And, and I think one of the most important things that I learned is that when you go into a new team, it's going to take you a while. It's going to take you around six months. It's going to take you three to four years to change the thought process of a team. But it's going to take you around six months for you, if you pay attention, to understand the culture of that place. And the culture, I mean, you know, you can come from 
California to West Virginia, and you're gonna have the same freaking cultural shock that if you come from uh, Spain to West Virginia, it's gonna be a totally different way of living. Make sense? And, and I think it's important to understand whatever you go. You know, when I went to Bowles, for example, I didn't change things right away. I, I, I was, a lot of it, I was quiet and I was trying to understand how the parents thought, how the school thought, how the other coaches thought, and try to see and, and see how I could fit into that, you know? And slowly you start changing. Now, that doesn't mean that I didn't coach the way I wanted to coach, but I wasn't aggressive. I said, oh, you know, uh, I came from this place and we built such a good thing that we're gonna do the same thing here. And, and every place is a little bit different. So I think you really need to understand the culture. And then slowly, you know, you need to understand how people think, how people eat, how people go to bed, how, how parents talk, you know, the socioeconomic uh, way of those parents, you know, like standard of living, the expectations. And then once you have an idea of how things work, uh, then you can start making changes. You know, I think, because if you change right away, uh, you're not going to create su sustainable success. You know, I always come back to creating sustainable success. And at one point, it's not going to have a good foundation. You know, so you slowly, you need to understand the place you are. You know, when I went to Singapore, probably was the biggest change that I had to do. And, you know, it, it was a very hard, it was very hard to understand how they thought, you know, and try to create a good system that I could blend the way they, they thought with the way that I think they should think, you know, and that took a long time. And I think, I think as a, as a coach taking over a program, uh, you have to really take your time. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people are like, wow, you know, I'm going to change this. I'm going to change that. I'm going to change this. And then if you go like that with that attitude, you're going to have a wake up call very quickly. You know? So I really feel that it's important to learn things, you know, to learn, uh, how people live and how people think and then you can create something that can become special and can be sustainable for a long period of time you know uh, the rest the nuances of like how many practices a week how many of these how many how hard you are I think those come later on I think but most important is for you to to understand who, who are you going to be dealing with or, or, or creating a partnership with not dealing with so but yeah that's that's what I thought. What I think. I know it's you know. Jeff, you have a uh, you have anything? Uh, I do. Um, when I saw this topic, I was I was very intrigued. I, I don't know how many um, folks have had the opportunity to do what I've done, but um, so I'm only the second coach in the history of our program. The first coach was there for 46 years. So that was a unique um, set of circumstances walking into. And the last, well, I'm going on year seven now. I have, uh, I've learned a lot. Um, I think that there's climate and culture. And I think the climate changes um, with every team. And I think climate is something that you can, you can make adjustments to pretty quickly. Um, and folks aren't too adverse to that. Culture takes time, and I think culture is what your program is about. Um, and I think, you know, 
I think three, four years, you, you can start really getting some traction with your culture, but I'm with you, coach. It's not something you want to come in and guns blazing and, and try and change everything overnight because your longevity uh, won't, be, won't be too great because um, you're going to piss a bunch of people off really fast. Um, making change, you're going to piss people off anyway because um, people don't like change. But if you're patient and you have the support of your administration or your board of directors, whomever it is, um, you know, in time, uh, you'll collect the, the people that are like-minded um, and your culture then will, will get traction. But I think climate's easy to, to make changes. Culture takes time. Thanks, Jeff. I, I really think it's, it's, you know, the changes are going to happen in an organic way. You know, it's a nice word that we like to use nowadays, you know. And it's going to be because the person that you are, you know, when you walk on the pool deck, you talk to people, you communicate and you share things, you know. And those are things that, that you can create a climate and you can create a situation much quicker that you can change a culture. And I agree with you. I think, I think to change a culture, you need to understand that culture. You know, I think we deal with, most of us, we deal with middle class to upper class people, pretty wealthy parents, uh, or affluent parents, or parents that, that are successful lawyers, successful doctors that have their own small businesses. And, and they need to know and understand the way you want to create success. And any change is going to, change, is going to make them feel really really weird because they, they have an idea of how that place should work. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated thing. It's not easy. I agree. And, and having, um, having the confidence to be patient and, and sustain some of the shots you're going to take while you're sl <clears throat> slowly changing the culture, that's hard. And you have to live in skin that maybe you're not comfortable living in because you have to kind of be somebody you're not comfortable being for a little bit while you learn the culture and start to make your change. Um, but I, I, I would tell people that are taking over programs, um, give yourself a minimum of three years. You'll be surprised what you can do in three. Um, and by the time you get to year seven and eight, it, it, it's a lot of fun at that point. Then you have it the way you want it. Thanks. So anybody else wants to share their experience or, you know, Come on, guys. I see people that have gone to programs. Jason. Come yeah, I'll jump on that. Oh, Lionel. Go ahead. Lionel. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we can hear you. Yes. Good. All right. Um, yeah. Okay, awesome. So, um, my case is I moved from uh, Auburn, Alabama. Well, I used to coach the uh, club team as well as the pros. Um, and I moved back to South of France where I took over a, um, a club team, which, you know, uh, had some success in the past, but for a long time, uh, hadn't been going anywhere. So I had to rebuild everything from ground zero um, until I realized that ground zero wasn't exactly where I needed to start. And then I had to rebuild all the foundations. So I needed to restart at minus 10. You know, and all much like uh, you guys said, I couldn't um, 
I couldn't say, well, you know, um, I come from the U.S. and we do this like that in the U.S. and we do it like that and we need to do it like that. Uh, I had to take into consideration the culture, exactly like you guys said. Um, but you do have to make um, change it, changes right away. Things that are dear to you and things you see at first, the dynamic of the club team, um, for my case, I need to change a few things right away. And, you know, uh, you don't make any friends. Um, but what I found was the, um, the most important thing regarding uh, the swimmers and the parents and uh, the people that run the club team, it's a parent-owned club team, um, was communication. It's extremely important on how you're going to uh, make those changes happen, you know. And once you explain to them, and uh, and once they see that what you what you, uh, what you're applying works and makes good changes, um, you get more and more allies with you that are going to push with you and help you, you know, uh, go through go through those uh, changes. But you know, culture then only comes after three, four, five years, you know, and that's the most difficult changes to make. And that definitely takes time, like you guys said. Thanks, Anna. Yeah, I think. Yeah, Serge, I can add a little bit if you'd like. Oh, absolutely. I think um, two things that I didn't hear yet was one, you know, when you're taking over a program, usually you've gone through an interview process and you know, they'll ask you questions. What changes do you want to make? What plans do you have? So one is making sure that you live up to what you told them. Um, if you come in and tell them you're going to change the culture, then, you know, make sure you have a plan and that you're working towards that. Uh, so remembering what you told them and, and going through with it um, is important. The second thing is, is that many times you've got about a six-month honey, six honeymoon period, give or take. So you could be sailing along for a couple months thinking everything's great. And then all of a sudden, six months and day one, wham, you know, everybody hates you and nobody likes what you're doing. So it's, it's really a, um, you, you do have to be careful, tread lightly, you know, but follow through with what you've said. But at the same time, you have to be aware of what's going on because people may not say anything right up front that, oh, you know, that's a bad idea. And then all of a sudden, six, you know, six months in one day they come back at you angry and pissed off that you know everything's uh wrong and everybody wants to quit the team so i think just kind of being aware um like sergio said of what's going on as well i don't know if that makes no, sense no I, I would agree with that i'd like to add to that a, a bit um i think everybody likes you until you have to make that first tough decision and and that's when that's when you find out who's with you and maybe who's against you. Um, and I think the first, I think the first tough decision you have to make when you take over a new program is, is, you know, if you're Batman, who's Robin, you know, and you, you have to look at your coaching staff so that you have one voice. Um, I feel like that that's the first thing that you have to um, look at when you're, when you're starting to take over a new program. I inherited 11 coaches. Um, that was a challenge. Um, and after nine months, we were down to myself and two of the original. <laughs> um, 
So, uh, but, but once we got, once we got the staff in place, things took off, you know, exponentially in terms of the athletes. So, but no, John, you're right. You got to remember what you said in the interview and, and know that when you make that first tough decision, you're going to make people mad. Thank you, Willis. Yeah, and I'm, I'll jump in that too. Um, just, I mean, I know it's kind of already been said, but um, kind of bouncing off what Jeff said, you know, being that person and being that initial person to make that tough decision, you really do need to learn who your friends are. And also on the other hand, and this is just coming from a parent board point of view, is understand that, you know, who's who's your boss, you know, and making sure that you – Make, and making sure that you understand that you are following through with your not only your plans, but also the plan of the board as a collective. Because one of my biggest struggles when I first started um, was, you know, going to a board meeting and, you know, going to a parent board meeting once a month and saying, well, I want to do this, 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 and this. And then they'll say, oh, yeah, sure, go for it. But then I'll do something that they didn't necessarily agree with, even though in my mind um, was going towards like for example I my my goal one of the goals that I said was I wanted to take a group of kids to sectionals so I started training so I started training groups a little differently and they didn't necessarily understand why I was training groups differently to get there to get there so I guess being able to communicate your goals and your ideas and making sure that your that your board understands what changes you'll make on top of the on top of those goals kind of go hand in hand, make sure that the communication between you and them is open. I think, I think I'll tell you a little bit differently that maybe Lionel, even though you went back to your country, when I went to Singapore, I tried to learn the culture. I tried to learn how to think, but it's, you know, when you go to a meeting, um, you know, if people don't explain to you how they, how they interact, how they talk, how they do things, you can make so many mistakes. And that's why I always emphasize that you have to understand whatever place you go. It's like when I said West Virginia and California, there are two great places to be, but they're two totally different places. You know, I remember, I remember uh, the coaches I had a, a, in Singapore, I had a, a coaches committee. You know, the, all these top coaches in Singapore, they voted for me to come to Singapore and be the national head coach or whatever the heck I was there. And, uh, we had we had regular meetings with them. So, and one of the things I come I come in with with a project of things, a proposal, you know, and I try to explain to them the, the proposal and this and that. And please give me all the ideas that you can, and let's change whatever you think that you can change and this and that. But from the moment that I handed to them the pamphlet, uh, not the pamphlet, the four or five pages of the proposal, they shut down. They shut down because in their culture or in their place, what they told me later on, other people, is that when you present something like that to them in the way that I presented, that means that it's already done, that they don't have any opinion, something like that. So I got all those coaches against me without knowing that they were against me. Does that make sense? And that works with a board of directors or works with, you need to understand who are you dealing with? And you learn that through the interview sometimes. And, 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 and then when you get there, your first job is to understand the people they are gonna make the right decisions or they're gonna help you to make the decisions. The parents that bring their kids to practice every day, 
and, and how that, all that place functions. Because if not, one of those things is going to be against you without you realizing and thinking that you've done the right thing. So that's another five cents that I have for you. Yeah, I'll jump on that again. Um, <clears throat> well, I um, I went back to France. With, I'm French, that's where I was born. But I had spent all my adult life in the my adult life in the U.S. So I spent 16 years in the U.S. Okay. Um, so I kind of I had to go in in your direction, Sergio. I still I had kind of relearned how the people were working, you know, how they were thinking, what, what was their thinking process um, uh, about uh, swimming and about school. You got to learn about how the edu educational system works because, you know, you have, always have to deal with school. It's a lot different than the U.S. So I understand that when you, when you go to a different place, um, really got to learn uh, how people work what kind of language they're talking. I'm not talking about French or English, but, you know, the sense and the words that you use um, to make sure that they understand where you're going and what you're doing, you know. And, um, and the other things, like you guys have been telling, like you can't do anything by yourself. You got to try to, you have to try and surround yourself with the, uh, the best coaches or the people are making decisions, you gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta be able to, um, to go with them because on your own, you won't be able to do anything. Okay. That's, that, that's uh, my uh, two cents. So we went from five cents to two cents. Who has a one cent? No. Uh, but you know, like one, one of the big barriers that I have, I know my English is very good, but sometimes, doesn't come across very well. So even you try to communicate, you know, uh, I'm just joking about my English being good, but uh, you know, sometimes when you present something to people and because I'm from, from Spain, no excuse, but we like to yell and move and be, move our hands. And you know, you have a dinner at home uh, with uh, the grandparents, the parents, and it seems like everybody's yelling at one another, you know? So sometimes when you try to express something and you're emotional, you know, people in America, for sure, or in, in Singapore, even worse, people take a step back and think, well, Sergio is very aggressive or he's upset. Uh, for sure, John can tell you that, but he's felt with me more than once, you know, because I could see it in his face. I could read it. Dee, 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 dee. Be careful, Sergio. <laughs> but, but those are the things that you have to really understand, you know, and, and, and those are the cues that are going to help you really change something. You know, it really changed the culture of a place, you know, and, and then create a good foundation. So, 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 yeah. And I understand Lionel. I remember when I went back to Spain and I was a professional swimmer and I set up a business and I was, uh, my business was, I had a nightclub right? and I was building, uh, we, we were building this nightclub, you know, and, and I have, I have these workers they were helping me. We brought the ruins of a 14th century castle for our nightclub to put them all with the lights and all this. And these workers come in and I'm going to make up the times, but let's say that they, they had to be there at 11 in the morning to fix to the rocks and these and all the ruins. They show up around one, like they walk, you know, with a lunchbox, a couple beers, 
Boom, 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 boom. I've been waiting there since 11. They, they say, hi, how are you, Sergio? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. They sit, they open their beers, their, their lunch, and they start eating their lunch. Now, I was, what the F is happening here? I've been here since 11. We said that this is going to start at 11. But I forgot that in my country, in the, back in the days, that's what they used to do. Uh, we do it tomorrow. No problem. Yeah, don't worry. It'll be done. But in America, that doesn't happen. You know, so I had to relearn how to just be calm and say, okay, I have to walk away, maybe go and get a beer myself and come back at maybe 2 o'clock. Or maybe after they take the nap, 3 o'clock. And then maybe things will get done. So that's an extreme, but those are the little subtle things that you have to, to, to really learn a lot. But yeah. Well, again, uh, Sergio, you make me think of uh, some important when you go through uh, and try to build a, a new program or when you get higher into uh, a new environment is to learn about this environment. Uh, you talk about the workers in your nightclub, but the way I see it here is uh, uh, the maintenance people at the pool. Yeah. You know, in, in Auburn, you had two guys and they were here from four in the morning until, you know, uh, 11 at night. For You know, I'm not I'm barely exaggerating, you know. And you could ask him anything, anytime. Everything was so spot, you know, everything was on all the time. And uh, I came to France and, and maybe for a second, I thought it would be the same. Oh, man. What a mistake, you know. It's a little bit like your Spanish workers. Okay, uh, so that's what. I, even if you move from one pool to another, I mean, we have we have five pools, and we have, so I have five director to deal with, and then uh, a bunch of uh, maintenance guy to work with. And you gotta you gotta know your environment, so uh, get acquainted with them, and then uh, make sure they understand where you're coming from and what you're doing and why you're doing it. I think knowing that is very important as well. It help you if you have good acquaintance with the people that uh, are in charge of the pool. I think they'll make your job way easier. Sure. Thanks, Lionel. You know, uh, if nobody wants to say anything, I'll, I'll piggyback into. I'll give you a story about when I was in Singapore. I'm a storyteller, right? so I'm, I'm going to give you a story. You know. Uh, in Singapore, talking about the guys, they, they, they work the maintenance, they do the maintenance of the pool. There were two Indian guys from Bangladesh, you know? And, and, and over there in Singapore, they have the helpers and the workers. They, it's kind of a different world. Uh, the Singaporeans really don't see these people as people, you know? And I'm not saying that in a negative way, yeah? It's just a cultural thing. They're used there to work. They live in this, uh, strange places and you only see them if you barely see them but so but i create a good relationship with them because you know for to me if i see them all the time i say hi bye goodbye ta 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 uh you know one of the guys was my age and had two kids they had the same age than my kids and he didn't haven't seen his kids for five years he's been working nonstop. now the only right that these guys had by the law is that they they had to sleep eight hours a day but not straight, just eight hours a day. They could, they could sleep two hours now, work three hours. So sometimes they were all over the place. Sometimes they would be sleeping in the machinery room just because they had to do other things. So I was always very nice to them. And, and I remember, I remember uh, just nice because I think I was brought up to be nice, you know, to, 
to see people. But the Singaporeans, my swimmers, I have 33 swimmers in the national team, they would never say hello or goodbye to these people. It didn't matter where they were. You know? So I remember one day I was talking with one of the workers, the older one, and we were, I was in between the women's and the men's locker room. And the Singaporean, my swimmers, every day after practice, they were so nice and polite. They would come, shake my hand, thank me for the practice, and go home. And that day, no one of the 33 even said good night or looked at the guy that was standing next to me. They didn't even acknowledge that the guy was there. So I think that really pissed me off. Pissed me off. I know it's a cultural thing. So in order to create a good environment that everybody could help one another, I, I needed to change that. So I had a meeting with them and I told them, I was like, look guys, I'm not upset. I think, I think in life, if you, if, you, if you run a big company, you want the person that cleans your toilets to do it the best way that they can. Because when you need to go to the toilet, you want to feel comfortable and nice. And if you, if you cross paths with them and you're not nice and polite, you don't have to go out of your way. They will not care how that works. And some days you're going to have to go really quickly to the bathroom and you're going to be upset. So, you know, it's important that you say hi or bye anytime that you cross paths. Plus, plus also, for example, we practice until 7 p.m. And then at 7.30, we have the water polo team coming in, so they have to switch the pool. So at 7 p.m., 7 sharp, the guys were right next, next to me to change the pool before they knew me. They had 30 minutes to change the pool. It, it normally took them 10 minutes. But sometimes, you know, you go over. You know, you go to 7.10, 7.5. Well, when I became friends with them without realizing it, they would never stand next to me. They were waiting in the boiling room or in the, in the machinery room. And whenever they saw that I finished, they came in and they changed, you know? And I told them that's, that's how life works. They want to feel that you care for them. They don't need any special treatment, but they're people. And some of them are making a huge sacrifice to make sure that the pool that you practice every day is in the best situation and condition possible. So I think that's a, and that's a cultural thing. The kids after a month or a month and a half, some of them, they would even bring coffee. They became such good friends with these people. And you, Lionel, the, the guy, one of the guys at Auburn, um, Ken is, you know, and, and he's, he was there when I was there and he's the nicest person in the world. And he, he loved that pool. He would do anything for you to have that pool spotless. You know? So if you don't treat that person with respect, you don't have respect for yourself and you cannot really build a program. So it starts from the bottom. That's the end of my story. So hopefully somebody else can talk. Hey, Sergio, uh, it's Jimmy. Sorry, I uh, had to cut out for a little bit. So I, I missed uh, a chunk there, but um, um, I know some of these coaches on here, but not all, but I started a program uh, from scratch four years ago. And um, uh, so it's not exactly changing the culture, but it's creating one and, and developing it. And um, uh, very interesting because when I came, uh, there wasn't even an indoor swimming pool in the town, um, much less at the university. So they had no clue of much of aquatic sports and you know, there was a small club team and a Y team and things like that nearby, but, um, you know, nothing major. So, um, <clears throat> it was literally 
teaching people what swimming was all about. Um, that was interesting in and of itself. Um, but also it was my first, you know, deep foray into bringing international swimmers into this country. And, and, um, you know, one of the motivations was the fact that, um, I was getting to start a men's and women's team. And so I was creating potentially 35 opportunities for men that weren't available, you know, in this country right now. Um, but having these internationals come in was, was interesting because, um, we didn't have a huge international population at the university. Um, I think so far I've probably brought people in from maybe seven different countries that have never, um, uh, the university has never had any students from these countries to this point. Uh, and I'm continuing to add new ones, uh, seemingly each year. So, um, so like the, and, and not just me, but we've gotten, uh, from like tennis and, uh, hockey and a few other sports have done the same thing. But, um, so the whole dynamic of the university in some ways have changed. So as people get used to, um, managing with a lot more internationals as well as international athletes and that kind of thing. So, um, the biggest thing is to me was communication, um, teaching the university and teaching people not only our sport, but, you know, sort of, uh, how to take care of and manage athletes that have, you know, high expectations. I mean, I'm division two, so it's not like, you know, um, cranking Olympians out, but, uh, we do have uh, athletes with Olympic aspirations and, you know, national teams in their country and that sort of thing. So it's very, very important to them. So um, this was all a very unique experience to me. Um, but on the team side, um, it was kind of cool to set uh, the culture right away. And I guess the thing that I did, again, I'm dealing with college athletes. Um, I made it a, a, a joint thing. Uh, when I recruited these guys, I told them that we were going to be establishing or I was going to be establishing um, this with their help and that I needed their help um, and I was going to rely on them to help establish not just the program in terms of how fast we went, but just the day-to-day um, culture of the team and you know all that kind of stuff so it was a tremendous experience and um, but I really feel like me leaning on them and me asking their advice probably way more than I've ever done in my coaching career and I've always done a fair amount of that um, but I, I brought them involved in a lot of you know just uh, practices and habits and, and um, things that we would just do day to day. And uh, um, it's been a pretty cool thing for me so far, but I've learned a ton about team building and establishing culture. And, um, uh, you know, I got to share the pool deck with Sergio several years up at Northwestern, and, and I feel like he's a, a master at at developing those relationships with the student athletes and um, you know, we all do it differently, but I think there's probably some uh, key elements that are probably significant to all successful programs. So um, anyway, just wanted to share some of that with you guys. Thanks, Jamie. You've, you've been doing awesome over there. You have an awesome team. 
Congrats. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, nobody. Hey, sir. I got a question for, for Jay. Um, you know, when you came in at Sex a &M, uh, like obviously here at Virginia Tech, I'm a surge. I have a very similar, almost exact same philosophy that Sergio does on building a team and everything like that. Like, how do you navigate, you know, working with a coach that, you know, might not see everything as eye to eye as, you know, when we did at Bowles and all that type of thing? Like, how do you navigate that and not push, you know, because you're not only changing the team, you're trying to force a head coach or change or manipulate a head coach into doing some things and seeing things your way. Like, how do you navigate that? Um, I think the biggest thing at first is definitely trust, um, you know, between the head coach and I, just because we have two ways of doing things. So we had to trust each other. Um, but obviously as you know, you know, the biggest reason he always tells me why he brought me in was because he thought I was smarter than him. And that's definitely flattering, but it's also a scary thought process because he expects a lot out of me and what I had to do. But, um, so, you know, I had to, you know, understand his thought process. I had to understand the university's thought process, the, the culture of the team. Um, so that's something I definitely had to, something that I had to do. So, uh, I definitely wanted to change the culture in a certain way. And it just takes time. And honestly, it takes time for me to understand what, what they wanted. So, I, you know, honestly, the biggest thing is trusting the process myself. And like as Sergio always says, if you're not confident, the kids will see that you're not confident. So I always was always very confident in what I had to do. So that's kind of the way I thought of things and why I can just trust the process, you know. And then, you know, four years later, we're ten times better where we're at. So that's kind of the way I thought of things. Hey, Jay. Nobody else has any, anything to share about this? All right, we can move on to the, uh, John, you wanna, if nobody else has anything else, we can move on to the next thing. John said sure. like a couple of times this, and I totally forgot. <laughs> no worries, I'll explain it. <laughs> um, so basically, you know, it, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you always started out your season with a lot of slow or long distance, you know, 10, 400s, 10, 800s, steady state swimming. Um, my question is, is, is steady state swimming or long, slow distance swimming still a part of your, your workouts? Um, if so, you know, when do you do it and do you do it often? Because um, it does seem like more people kind of jump into the speed a little bit quicker in the season than you know, 10, 20 years ago. So basically, is steady state swimming still a part of your regimen, your workout? Uh, I'll jump in. I, I, start, I start the season with fast stuff. I always like, but I also start with, there's different days that I'll do longer stuff. I, I cannot do 10 800s because I don't understand that. But, you know, I can go, 10 300s, 10 400s, you know, different things, you know, a, a volume of three to 4,000. And sometimes it's just a steady swim. Sometimes it's just a, a little bit of far leg speed, changing speeds, but nothing really hard and working on the strokes. 
And I do that a lot, I think, you know, uh, I do it through the whole season, but not in a, I don't have it plugged in, in, a, in the right, in, in, oh, I'm gonna do week three this and week four this and week six this. I think a lot of that is just, I use it as a recovery tool, you know, a lot of it. And, um, and I plug it in when, you know, at the beginning of the season, maybe more often, but then later on when I think I need to stop, you know, stimulating so much power and speed and these things and, and maybe, you know, give them a little bit more rest and trying to understand how to swim tired because they're exhausted, but without low heart rate and with perfect stroke and doing good turns. I guess that's, but I, 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 you know, you know me, John, I use speed from day one, you know, um, so that's more or less my thought process. Wow. Today, today, it's been like going to the dentist, you know, trying to pull teeth for people to talk. Okay, I'll go. Awesome. Go. <clears throat> All right. So, being of the year, I always do a lot of technique. Um, like breaking down the strokes into where we, we, we teach them the different drills we're going to use throughout the year, uh, evolving with those drills. But we're trying to hit the basics of stroke technique. And when I do longer stuff, like you mentioned, John, um, it'll be as a almost as a, a technique set, which is we're going to try to work on one particular um, detail in your stroke and try to maintain that and work that. Uh, of course, it ain't, it's not going to be over, you know, 10, 800, uh, but maybe 10, 200, yes. Um, and I can do that in strokes or in freestyle. And, um, you know, uh, and then we'll also do it for the distance uh, swimmers. But um, I try to stay away from monotonous sets uh, and always try to have something fun in there. So, yeah, I'm not going to, rarely going to have 10, 400s just straight swimming because um, I think it, it needs to be a little more playful than that. Okay. So, I, I always try. And some, sometimes I may not succeed, but I always try to put something fun in there, which is a little bit of speed or some underwater work or uh, work on your flip turn in the middle of the 50-meter pool or, you know, something fun here and there to um, try and break down the monotony. But for, for me, if I look at it, um, uh, long swim is to try and maintain the, the best technique you can the longer. You can. Thank you. So my question to John is your question within the context of the current situation of us having to navigate back into the pool, or are you looking more in terms of like an overall philosophy in a normal year? Or you look, I mean, like, cause those are two different scenarios. Like if we're looking at, okay, we only have an hour and 15 minutes and you know, as, as club coaches, what's that going to look like as we're moving forward? Do you have that luxury of the slow, smooth swimming, or do you need to go more speed-based? Because I'm, I only have an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and 30 minutes anyway, so that's kind of how I always coach, is that shorter brief 
thing and you and I have talked about that, but um, what, what prompted your question on that? Um, it was more of a, a philosophical thing. I mean, I, I don't do it. Um, I was just curious if, if it's still out there or, you know, kind of what people do, let's say the first third of the season. Um, you know, does anybody still do that thing? And it was just an I thought that popped in my head that I thought might be an interesting discussion. Um, you know, and I'm kind of curious. More of it was to hear from outside of the U.S. Uh, coaches rather than inside the U.S. coaches. Because, I mean, I see a little bit more what goes on here, but I have no clue what goes on, you know, outside. But it can be for anyone. I, th I think, John uh, – uh, oh, go ahead, Jeff. Go ahead. Uh, I'll, I'll just share what we do the first third of the year. Um, <laughs> we, um, we look at the first five to six weeks as, um, as more of like a swim clinic spend a week doing every stroke, which I'm sure a lot of you do. Um, and when we're in the water, a lot of technique, a lot of speed, um, slowly working the kids over the course of that five to six week camp into the cycles we'll be running um, the remainder of the season. But we choose to really tax the system and, and build the aerobic base um, through that five to six week time period on land. Well, that's when we really hit the dry land hard. It's probably the only time period during the year where we really get after the dry land, with the running um, and things of that nature. And then in the water, if we do anything long, it's, it's uh, that during that period of time, it's long, hard kicking. But we do still do um, long swimming. Um, once a month, our distance swimmers will do an eight to 10,000 for time. Um, you know, we, we still like to do things like that, but, uh, to get back into conditioning, uh, we don't do any long, easy swimming. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, I think John. I'll, I'll, have, I'll go, hop. Go ahead, Trevor. Go ahead, well. go ahead. Um, go ahead. So, John, to answer you. So, I, I kind of do a combination of what Lionel and Jeff have said, where we use the first few weeks as just to kind of just a, a way just to come back, revisit the strokes, figure out you know, figure out how, uh, how a lot of my kids have grown, figure out, you know, like stroke counts, how many, you know, how many dolphin kicks should you do this season off the wall starting now versus, versus last season. Um, I might do a test set at the beginning, um, a couple week, a few weeks in again, just to kind of stick, you know, kind of just, you know, just stick a stake in the sand and figure out where my guys are. Um, and something else that I'll, and something that I've thought about doing, um, that I, that I was thinking about, that I thought about doing that I, I'm, that I'm not quite sure how well it would work with my guys would be kind of at the beginning of the season, maybe even do a practice where we do a time trial almost where we, you know, I mean, it's just, just a regular time trial where I'll, you know, line them up in heats and, you know, all right, hundred freestyle, ready, go do four heats of that and do kind of pick two or three events where just to see that, just to see where my guys are at. Thanks, Trevor. I, I think, John, uh, I think uh, maybe also the reason why a lot of coaches don't do, and I think it would be the same in Europe, even though I know people that do 120K a week, but uh, those people, they don't do anything else besides their lives. You know, Sometimes they, th they do three practices a day. And um, 
I think nowadays it's very hard to have hours and hours of swimming just uh, in the pool. The kids are not, the kids are not, they're not better or worse. They're, they're different than when we used to swim. They don't have the attention span. They're doing 10, 800s. You know what I mean? Just they spend all the all day long with video games, their phone, their Facebook, their Snapchat, and you know if they don't like something, they can reset it and start over. You know, so I think I think you have to become a little bit more creative to be able to, and you know, to get some of that work in. So I think it's more of a the times that we live. You know, to, to, this has evolved, but I don't know. I, I that's just a thought. No, and it's, it's, it's um, I mean, it's kind of what I figured. I was, you know, more curious than anything else if, if people still did it. Because, like I said, I I don't do it. I kind of pretty similar to what you guys are. And um, it's like Jeff and, and Lionel said, you have to keep them entertained to a certain extent. Otherwise, you know, maybe not necessarily entertained, but challenged. Um, you know, there has to be some type of a challenge with everything. Uh, you know, 10-400s might have its place or 10-800s might have its place for a distant swimmer that, you know, or someone who's doing a 15K open water swim and needs that. But I think, you know, I agree with you guys for the most part. It's, uh, it might be something if you're pissed off at them. But other than that, it's, you know, what are you trying to get out of it? Mm-hmm. You know, 4,000 yards is 4,000 yards. Fast or slow, you're still doing 4,000 yards. Um, it's just exactly what you want to get out of it. So it, it was a question I was curious about. You know that when one time when I got pissed off at balls, you know I, I made a power PowerPoint presentation, put all the kids in one room, and show them how in in three hours I could have a fifteen thousand yard practice for them instead of like the three hours that, that we had, we could do a forty five hundred or a five thousand. So if they didn't change their attitudes because they were pissing me off, we could do that. You know, and I showed them how you could do ten one thousands with fins, ten seconds rest. Go ahead. And, and that doesn't take too much time to think about it, you know. Sometimes it's important to, to show the kids that they can do a lot more work in, in an hour and 40 minutes than what they do, you know. But we choose to do things differently because maybe we don't believe that they need to do that type of work, but we try to be more creative and always make, make fun things and exciting so they don't, you know. But I remember, I, I thought so many times when they were so appreciative of what you were trying to we were trying to do to just go and say okay you know what you want you want three hours fifteen thousand here we go every day uh we never i remember that presentation (laughs) that's part of psychology 101 (laughs) but yeah uh john i can uh, share a little bit of uh, what's uh, going on in france as far as the um, the way of uh, coaching is going, but you can find uh, anything like in the U.S. You can find you know coaches that are big yardage fan, fan and some coaches that are more you know uh, speed fan. But the uh, uh, the main trend is uh, a swimmer's got to put in the yardage to be able to be good. So. Uh, for example, you have some 16-year-old uh, kid that trained already 11 times a week. You know, that's one example. Um, and most of the coaches, they, they tell you, well, you know, you want to be good, you got to put in the yardage. And 
uh, they're not talking about a five five grand in three hours. They're talking about more fourteen uh, k a day. You know that's the general trend. And but you have exceptions, uh, of course. Um, and I've heard you know, and some of my best friend uh, Sergio. If you know Frank Esposito, for example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, Frank is a big yardage uh, coach. And for example, like uh, week two or three uh, in uh, late August, you know, beginning of the season, beginning of September, maybe week two or three is already at seven grand a practice, you know. Um, so we still see in, in France, you know, some of the big guys that do a lot of yardage. Um, and some, but some of them, other, other, other than that, some of them, they have a different psychology, which is, okay, we're going to spend time in the water. That doesn't mean you're going to do 7K, you know, but you're going to spend time in the water. You might spend, you know, uh, twice a day, three times, uh, three hours per practice. That's not, you know, you might just do 5K every time, but you do spend time in the water. So you, you can spend time in the water doing a bunch of things, you know. Uh, they may be fun, they may be challenging, but they may, you know, working on technique. If you work on video, you, you guys all know that takes a lot of time. So um, that's that's what's going on here, you know, uh, if I generalize a little bit. Thanks, Milo. Guys, I got to experience uh, uh, early in my coaching career with. Uh, I spent time with Dennis Persley and then a guy that I doubt many of you know, a guy named Bill Peak, who was probably one of the best coaches in the country, maybe the world, but just uh, not many people knew of him yet. Um, but I think a lot of it is the, the development of the athlete and how it's progressed through their career, which I'm sure many of you know. So, um, uh, I was from Louisville, Kentucky, so Mary T. Maher uh, was, uh, grew up in our hometown, ended up coming to my club. Um, we were at the same Catholic church as her family. We were eight, they were 11, you know, good old-fashioned Catholic family. Um, but Denny uh, had Mary T. swimming at pretty high volumes, you know, probably... 8,000 most practices, um, you know, some 20,000 days, you know, even long course. Um, uh, I even swam several years under Denny myself. So um, we would do a 4,000 set um, after warm up, and then the main set was still to come. So that's some of the volume that, that um, I got to experience with him. But Mary T sets a world record um, under. Denny and then Bill Peak comes along Mary T's a little bit older his practices are more like seven grand maybe 65 seven uh, he does a lot more broken swims a lot more race pace and that's when Mary T went 205 and, and 58 nine long course so you know I think to me it's important to learn um, I would never coach somebody at you know 120 K a, a week kind of thing. Um, but I think it's important to learn what that might do. Are there some things you could take from that, maybe pieces of that type of training, maybe not the whole thing, uh, 
Um, and if you've got swimmers at a younger age, obviously, you know, what do they need to do to get to be at a very high level? Um, could Mary T have gone that fast without the high volume? Uh, it's arguable one way or the other. Um, but what she did really, really worked. And, um, you know, so she got to go through those phases. She had the, the super high volume and then it came down. I'd say Bill Peaks coaching was a little bit more of what we do today. Um, and, you know, that made her, uh, you know, obviously one of the greatest swimmers ever in the history of our sport. So uh, anyway, those are some of my thoughts on that. Thanks. Thanks, Jimmy. That's awesome. So question. So Jimmy, along those lines, does, do you think that there's something to be said for it depends on the type of swimmer that can respond to like a higher volume? And this really is for everybody. Like, yeah. like some athletes really have to have that like higher volume in order to be successful versus like some athletes really needing kind of more of a focused and technique based. Yeah. I think there's certainly no doubt. And you know, there's also the mental side too. There was a period when I was at, this was Lakeside Swim club in Louisville. And, um, uh, you know, we were, much, much stronger on the girls' side. Um, my opinion was the girls were just mentally stronger to be able to manage that type of stuff. And, um, you know, we lose a lot of the talented guys to, to baseball or, or another sport. Um, so, you know, I, I, th I think certainly some of them could handle that type of work better than others. And obviously those that made it through it, in most cases, I think, blossomed because um, there was a lot of really fast swimming in our area at the time from that club. But um, um, it probably chased a few people away, though, as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you had to be mentally tough. You had to be really mentally tough, and you, and you had to almost trust the coach. Um, there wasn't as much explaining, right, how this works and what to do. It was a little bit, not that Denny was that way, but it was a little bit more of, just believe and trust in me, you know, we're going to get you there kind of thing. Thanks, Jimmy. I, I think in the past it was easier to give a kid 12,000 because the coaches too were, you know, uh, not, not to play down any mental health or any of the issues that we have today. There was none of that. You just either do what I tell you or, I hit you or you get the F out of here, you know? Uh, and it's as simple as that, you know? And so a lot of the kids, there was nothing else to do. Right now, you tell the kid, hey, Jimmy, sorry, but you need to get out of this club. And probably he's gonna buy you a present because maybe his parents were forcing him to swim and now he can go and play baseball, video games, uh, go out, uh, spend hours on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, so it's, it, they're different times. You know. I agree. I've said this before. How many um, you know, friends growing up, right? So those of us that are maybe over 50 or whatever, how many friends of ours growing up did we know that were on some type of medication, you know, for, you know, emotional issues, um, things like that? I can't name one guy or girl that I grew up with that was on some medication for things like that. Now it's all over the place, right? I mean, you know, I have college athletes 
uh, multiple ones on a team at a time that have panic attacks and some of them can't function, you know, on a certain day when they do. And I, I've learned to deal with it, but I never dealt with that years ago. And I don't remember any of my teammates dealing, you know, having those kind of things. So uh, I agree with Sergio. I think it's just a very different time. And, um, you know, if you go back to the, you know, Vince Lombardi football and all that kind of stuff, you know, it, it, there was a lot more uh, authoritative coaching. There was a lot more coaching. I mean, Bill Peak was a, a great friend of mine. Um, and he coached me briefly, but standing on the pool deck and watching him coach athletes through the use of fear and intimidation, it was unbelievable. Um, some athletes swam incredibly fast because they feared him. Um, I couldn't do that. That's not my personality, but for him, it worked and uh, probably wouldn't work as much today. Uh, different times. No better or worse, just different. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think nowadays you have to be very careful what you say what you say, how you do things. And sometimes we, I think we didn't, we didn't found a middle ground. We went from this to this. And um, it's very interesting. I'll share another story, you know, that, you know, like I've seen when I was training with Joseph Nagy, it was really, I think he was right with what he did, but I felt so ashamed sometimes of being in that group, you know, like, you know, when you feel like, uh, I, we had athletes, swimmers, that were pretty good coming to the pool deck and uh, all excited about starting to train with him. And he would tell them right away, oh, you're not worth it. You're not going to go through this. You need to get the hell out of here because blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and I can tell you how many of them, after listening to, to him, they just put their head down, walked away, and never came back. Yeah. One of the only ones that stayed and went through it is Rock Santos, that he ended up making the Olympic team. And in two and a half years, he went from 223, not having a chance to make the Olympic team, to winning the Olympic trials. And I can assure you one thing. I saw him cry on the shower every day. I saw him pretty much almost crawl of the pool. And I'm not telling you that that's a good way of coaching. Yeah? Because I cannot do that. You know, I, I know I made many kids cry, but not in purpose. You know, but but that's 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 the coaching style that many coaches have been. You know, and at the end of the day, Joseph is a piece of has a heart like a like a big heart, and he's a very nice guy. But that's the way they did things, the, the way they believe. You know, nowadays if I say something to that like that to one of my athletes coming in, next in the next hour I, I hear from the athletic director and they give me a letter and a plane ticket to go somewhere else. So you have to be very careful. So I don't know, I, I think we've deviated a little bit, but um, anybody, want, anybody else wants to share something? No? Sergio. I, hi. I, hi, Jeremy. Um, I will jump on uh, what you said before. I'm um, I'm actually living in Montreal, Canada. So, but I'm originally from uh, north of France, 
And I see the difference when I move from France to Canada, the culture and, and, and the different kind of training we, we are actually doing. So when I started in 2000 in France, I was more, uh, I was a young coach and I worked a lot on volume and, and stuff like that. And when I moved in 2006 here in, in Montreal, my, my philosophy changed a bit, you know, it was, I was more focused on working on skills and, and, and developing some aspect like that and, and, and not focusing only on volume. So, so I bring, I work more on the quality versus the quantity. And actually what we are, what we are doing in Quebec, it's, uh, it's because people work more on quality and, and, and not, and not quantity. So actually what we are, what we try to do is to, it's to bring back a little bit the volume, but keep the, the, the evolution of the skills and the quality. So, so I saw, I saw difference between what I did before and what I'm doing actually. And, and it was the same thing for, for the culture. The culture was totally different when I work in France. And when I arrived in, uh, in Canada, it was more like the, in, the interaction and the positivity with the, with the feedback, with the athlete, with everything like that was it was more important here you know in france it was more not negative but it's french people it's more negative um i don't know the name but it's it's easier to uh to look at the negativity and here it's more easier to look at the positivity on what you are doing so so i see a big difference was it was it hard for you to adapt? It was hard. It was hard in different ways. First, first of all, it was hard because I didn't spoke uh, a, a, a word in English at this time when I arrived. Montreal is a French part of uh, of Canada, but people every everywhere in Canada, everybody is speaking English. So it was one of the big things. I didn't spoke. I didn't speak. Um, uh, French Quebecer, but it's, uh, it's totally different than French from France. Really, it's a new language. So what you said about when you arrive from Spain to USA, I, I, I had the same feeling. It was totally different for myself. It was really, really hard. And what I understood maybe a little bit later, it was I needed to, to understand the culture in 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 more in Canada in Quebec especially, and understand how people work, you know. So yeah, it was it was it was a it was a mess at the, at the beginning. So I think I spent uh, the first five years to to really understand people and their culture and and everything like that, you know. So. Uh, I, I, uh, it's a tough it's a tough process yeah it's a tough it's a tough and long process but when you are uh, commit to 
and you understand that it's it's much easier after that yeah. you know so and you and you learn a lot that's awesome well thank, thanks a lot jeremy i think, oh, I think well, yeah. anybody else wants to share you know nope I. You know, I don't want to cut this short, but you know, I just been. I think this is my seventh hour on the freaking Zoom. Uh, soon is going to be Zumba, you know. So um, uh, if you, if nobody wants to share anything else, we can we can cut it here, and then next week, I'll try to think of something else. I, I don't remember the subject that we have for next week, but if if any one of you really, I, I know these groups are getting smaller, you know, uh, because this. People have started to work, at least in America, some of the places are open and there's so many groups. But if we can keep it, um, if somebody really wants to talk about something different than what I send in the email, just let me know and then we can talk about that. But I think, I hope, I really hope that once this coronavirus thing and all it's over, people will still keep this type of platforms to talk even if it's only 15 minutes a week you know, for 15 minutes or 30 minutes every two weeks. Because I think that's the way that we can grow and we can help one another see different ways of doing things. And sometimes there's no magic pill, but I think listening to somebody else, even if you don't say anything, it might open up something in your brain that might, might help you be better. Yeah. So I really thank you for, you know, being, being with us for nine weeks. Thank you for organizing, Sergio. Much appreciated. Much appreciated, Sergio. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sergio. Appreciate it. Hey, Take care, you. Serge. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank, Thank you. you, guys. See you, man. Yeah. Have a good one, guys. Okay. Take care. Bye.